All right. Uh, good afternoon, good evening, or good morning, everyone, depending on wherever in the world you're joining us from. I'm broadcasting live from David from Twitter headquarters. It's David Sachs here. Uh, Elon is Even that. before the halting, glitchy, and frankly weird launch of Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign on Twitter, it was clear that Linda Yaccarino was taking a tough job. Twitter CEO is not a normal CEO gig, especially when you're Elon Musk's pick to run the company. The consensus was that whoever took that role was going to have quite an uphill climb. That's Victoria Elliott, who covers platforms and power for Wired. Both because of the position that Twitter is in right now, and also because of the visibility that Elon has, and the fact that even for companies where he's not necessarily running day-to-day operations like SpaceX, he's still kind of considered the face of that brand. Yaccarino has to thread a delicate needle, keeping Musk happy while winning back skeptical advertisers. She has a deep background in ads and partnerships. That's what she was in charge of at NBC Universal. They need someone with that expertise, um, especially because they have lost so much advertising revenue in the six months ish that uh, Musk has been in charge. So I think qualification wise, she's a very smart and natural pick, of course. But There's something else, something Vittoria wrote a story about, something that fits a pattern in corporate America. It is, I think, not lost on people, specifically like academics and experts who study these patterns, that in this moment where the company is doing much worse than it's done historically, uh, that it is a woman who's being tapped to lead. And that doesn't, again, mean anything about her not being qualified, if anything, oftentimes the women who take these roles are eminently qualified. More than anything, it reflects on the idea that it is not until a moment of great crisis and therefore a need for great change that companies will often choose that moment to appoint someone who is a person of color or a woman or, or both. Today on the show how Linda Yaccarino is standing on the edge of what's known as the glass cliff. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is at most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, 
and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. It's important to understand that Twitter, at least back when Twitter was a public company and we could look at its financial statements, made almost all of its money from advertising. And Elon Musk's terminally online antics have really threatened that. Right now, Twitter's primary crisis is that it lost a lot of advertisers um, when Musk took over, partly because he was very clear about wanting to offer amnesty to users who had been banned in the past, some of them with neo-Nazi politics or incredibly hateful histories of speech. Uh, he wanted to offer amnesty. He, you know, has made himself a very much a free speech absolutist, although that is sort of mostly in the American context because Twitter has been taking down more content abroad than it has in the past by the request of governments. I think it really spooked a lot of advertisers. And there was actually a study uh, that came out just recently that I reported on um, from some researchers at the University of Southern California, I believe, who basically showed that Twitter did get worse when Musk took over. There was more hate speech. There wasn't a decrease in bots. There was all these problems that everyone sort of said were going to occur. And that spooks advertisers. And that also spooks users. And so it becomes this sort of death spiral. Advertising, at least before Twitter became a private company, generated 90% of the company's revenue. Linda Yaccarino is, you know, an advertising powerhouse. That is her background. And I guess I wonder how she threads this needle, right? How do you manage to either win back advertisers or court ones who are nervous while also not alienating Elon Musk? I think her biggest challenge and one of the biggest determiners of her success, at least according to the people that I spoke with, um, is really going to be how much time, money, and breadth she's really given to make decisions about these things. Because Musk is going to be staying on as CTO, which means he's going to be responsible for product. A lot of the technical stuff is still going to go ostensibly through him. He's also going to be staying as part of the board. So we don't know yet how much breadth she's going to have to roll back some of these decisions or or change certain things. But I mean, I will say that like if you look at SpaceX, which is another one of Musk's companies where he is CEO, but the COO, 
um, which is Gwen Shotwell, um, runs day-to-day operations, I think it's pretty evident that she has a lot of breadth to make decisions for SpaceX. So, I mean, it's not just because he's staying in an executive leadership position doesn't mean that she's not going to have the time or support she needs. But, you know, we really don't know right now. You know, he's still in a prominent position where he can tweet something publicly and that can maybe make her job a little bit harder, as I think people at Tesla have figured out and and at some of his other companies. So I think there's always that risk. But in terms of the day-to-day operations of the company, I think, you know, at least with SpaceX, we see that he has a lot of trust in the other executives. And, you know, she may have the breadth she needs to, to make some substantive choices. Do you think her hiring says that he has figured out that maybe his past conduct and the shedding of advertisers was an oopsie? Like, is it an acknowledgement that he needed someone to to come in and do that side of the business? You know, I don't know that we can say for sure. I definitely think, if nothing else, it acknowledges a need for that particular form of expertise for the company to be successful. And I think a lot of times companies the background of the people that they choose as CEO sort of reflects the future that they're possibly envisioning for the company um, or the areas of the company that are going to be most vital to it. And so I think, again, the fact that she has this background, if nothing else, reflects his understanding that advertising is going to continue to be an incredibly important source of revenue that um, plays like Twitter Blue and and sort of some of the other revenue-generating ideas that he's had probably can't be the substantial foundation for the economic survival of this company. Tell me about the glass cliff. What exactly is it? It is a phenomenon that um, was actually identified almost 20 years ago, so it's, it's quite well known and quite well documented at this point. When companies are in crisis, women or people of color are more likely to be chosen as executive leaders. The, you know, this is this is sort of a complex reason why this happens, and. Part of it is that when companies are in crisis and they need to signal change, like we're making big, substantial changes here, there's a very visible change in choosing someone who looks completely different than your previous leader um, to fill that role. To be clear, Vittoria says, it's not that the women or people of color stepping up aren't qualified more that it can take a crisis for a corporate board to even consider them. I think the other thing is, you know, we have a lot of really successful examples, like Mary Barra, obviously, at GM, is historically held up as this incredible leader who took the company out of the financial crash where it was teetering on the edge and made it profitable again. And so while these jobs leading companies in crisis are often way more difficult. That doesn't mean that these people can't be successful, and it doesn't mean that the people who are being chosen for them are not up to the task. A lot of the times, they really are. It's just the challenges they face are much higher than um, the male CEOs who came before them. Your story had a headline saying Linda Yaccarino was teetering on the edge of a glass cliff, and she responded with it with a tweet. She quote tweeted it and said, as someone used to wearing four inch heels, let's be crystal clear. I don't teeter. Twitter 2.0 hashtag together we rise. What what do you what do you think of that? Like, what does that kind of response tell you? Well, it tells me that that headline was very good clickbait. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think it would be it would be foolish for someone in her position to do anything but express confidence in in the things she's doing and if anything, the fact that they're both willing to do this and, you know, and if she can turn Twitter around, it shows nothing but her her excellence and her capacity and her bravery um, to do a very difficult thing. When we come back, a not quite glorious history of Silicon Valley sending a woman to the plate to bat cleanup. The term glass cliff was first coined by Michelle Ryan and Alexander Haslam at the University of Exeter in the UK in 2005. Subsequent research looking at Fortune 500 companies found that over a 15-year period, women and people of color were much more likely to be appointed CEO when a company is in crisis. Two notable Silicon Valley examples are Ellen Pau, who was tapped to run Reddit, and Marissa Mayer at Yahoo. Marissa Mayer was, she was quite young when she was appointed um, as CEO of Yahoo. She was 37. She was sort of a Google wonderkind. And she was incredibly talented. But she was appointed in 2012. And that was sort of like peak Facebook and Google dominance. You had two companies that were just eating, eating, eating for Google, the search and email and sort of everything market. And Google and Facebook were eating the ad market. You know, it was a very tough position for her to come into. And there are definitely mistakes that she's been criticized for in her leadership, and no one's going to be perfect. But the reality is that she came into the company at a quite a tough time um, when the market forces were not really in the company's favor. And she brokered a deal um, to sell Yahoo to Verizon. And again, you could be critical of that, but the reality is she managed to at least land the plane. You know, she, she found an exit. Similarly, Ellen Powell was um, CEO at Reddit. She tried very hard to deal with the company's hate speech and harassment in some of its more um, more aggressive uh, subreddits. And ultimately, people, users didn't like that. And there, she faced a lot of harassment and she, she exited pretty quickly. And for her, you know, that issue of hateful content being sort of rampant on the platform, that predated her. Hmm. But she was the one who was choosing to deal with it. You know, no leader is perfect. Everyone's going to fuck up. Nobody's going to make all the right calls. It's just not possible. But research shows that women leaders are going to be under more scrutiny for making wrong calls, and they're going to have less forgiveness. Do you, do you think that is particularly stark in Silicon Valley, where you have a, a Broy culture, a lot of, you know, venture capital firms led by men, and I think, frankly, an a environment that can be hostile to women. You know, I, I, obviously Silicon Valley does have its, its bro culture, but I think when you're talking about executive leadership generally, that's a very male-dominated space. Yeah. I think there was like a Bloomberg piece recently that said that like, for the first time, the number of women CEOs has outstripped the number of CEOs named John. Like, you know, it's not like it's not like every other industry is some paragon of gender equity. And it's not like the space of executive leadership is particularly well-balanced gender-wise. So obviously, Silicon Valley has its reputation and there is a reason for that. Yeah. But I think when we're talking about the upper echelons of any company— this is a pattern we see across the board. Lindy Yaccarino was also in this 
very specific position where she is coming in, taking control of Twitter, but at the same time, what Elon Musk has been doing over the last six months or so has created a very staunch group of supporters who were very happy with what he was doing, this this particular kind of army of his. And her embrace of like kind of standard corporate DEI initiatives at NBC or frankly somewhat banal like yay women's empowerment tweeting have meant that she's been received by his guys, by his like very online group of people with a big thud. It's like a it seems like a a particular issue with this job because it's not just Elon. It's not just Twitter's employees. There's also the online world and how they receive her coming in. I like I wonder if you think about how that complicates her job. I think users of any social platform are often really critical of that platform if they feel like it's not doing exactly what they want it to do at all times. Um, And that would be true for anyone taking over this role. You know, Musk has obviously cultivated a really big sort of cult of personality, particularly on the platform. But, you know, there are many people who see this as a like, okay, good. Like, you know, he's bringing in this person who's, you know, seems very qualified. She And because they have loyalty to Musk, and this is a decision that, you know, he and his team have made, and, you know, it's ultimately still his platform that he owns, you know, they support it. Hmm. Um, so, so the fact that know, Cat Turd 2 is tweeting, like, Twitter 2.0 was fun while it lasted, get ready for it to suck again. <laughs> like, we just <laughs> figure, like, Cat Turd's followers are, are actually going to be more loyal to Elon. You know, I, I don't think there's a way that anybody in this role could keep everyone happy, you know? Fair. Because the reality is... Um, for as many people, for the small faction of of Twitter that really liked this version of the platform, there are large sections of users who do not and who have either left or reduced the level to which they use the platform. You know, I think we're also seeing this moment where part of the reason that people haven't necessarily felt like they could leave is because there's not really anywhere else to go. Twitter is such a, like, public-facing platform. It felt very much like the place to go for the news and for the voices of important people, sort of in reaction to real-time events in many ways. And there hasn't really been something like that that felt like it could replace it. But now we're seeing Blue Sky, we're seeing T2, Mastodon obviously had its moment. So, you know, we're also maybe entering a world where there might eventually be some form of competition for this particular type of platform. You know, I think the other thing to really think about is the people right now who are paying for blue checks, they're not accounting for very much money. Um, And part of what made Twitter popular in the first place was the fact that they sort of pioneered the the sort of traditional system of verification that, um, you know, they would verify celebrities and artists and stuff like that. And so that meant that, like, you couldn't necessarily have these accounts pretending to be someone that they weren't if they were a famous person. And that 
meant that you had celebrities like Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber or whoever um, using the platform and bringing their followers there. And so stripping away that sort of thing really gives another platform the possible opportunity to fill that void. And so I think, you know, as much as maybe people might gripe with decisions either which way, whoever is CEO of Twitter um, was going to have to make some calls that are ultimately best for the survival of the platform. And I think many of these people would probably prefer to continue to have Twitter to complain about Twitter on than to not have it at all. How much runway does she have? Because, you know, Twitter's not a public company. She doesn't have to immediately assuage shareholder concerns. How long do you think she's got to show that that she can take this company onto more solid financial footing? Um, you know, we don't know. What I can say is that some of the professors that I spoke to sort of ballparked when a woman takes over in leadership, like, roles like this one that, you know, maybe you get two, three years, but we don't know. And the reality is that whatever the amount of time is often for women, it's shorter than what men would get in that same situation. But again, hopefully she and Musk are aligned with what they perceive as the priorities. And I think, you know, we we really can't say, but, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. And I think as sometimes as impulsive as as Musk can sometimes appear in his decision-making, he is probably a wise enough businessman to know that that will take time. Victoria Elliott, thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you so much. Victoria Elliott is a reporter for Wired, covering platforms and power. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Patrick Fort. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Join Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. You will get all your Slate podcasts ad-free. All right, we'll be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. 
We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.